0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Based on shocking true events, the new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, tells the story of a savage murder in a small town. Starring Riley Keo and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays only on Hulu.
1: Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Before we start, quick plug for another show. Up first... It's NPR's morning news podcast. Up First is about 12 minutes long, and it's produced and posted at 6 a.m. every weekday morning. The show makes you real smart, real fast, and I listen every day. You can hear Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Every Tuesday, we bring you a deep dive conversation. Today, I am talking to novelist Danzi Sinna about so many things. We're talking about race. We talk about how whatever your race, it's something that we all kind of perform. We're talking about how the Internet and current politics affect all of this. And we're talking about what it means to have artistic integrity in an era of safe spaces. All these issues come up in Danzi's new novel. It's called New People. It's the story of a light-skinned black woman named Maria. She lives in Brooklyn in the 90s. The character has a really interesting group of friends, a bunch of young black intellectuals trying to figure out their racial identity. And she has a nickname for them all. It is a very hilarious twist on the N-word. You will hear it in the interview. Um, There's also some really serious and scary drama in the book as well that I don't want to spoil, so I won't tell you any more about that. But let me just say, could not put this book down. Also, here's why I think you'll really like this chat. I find usually a lot of times with issues like politics or race or gender, things we seem to be always talking about, it often feels like we are saying the same things over and over again on those topics. Well, this conversation today... It just felt new, even to me. So let's get to it. Here's Danzie Sinna. She was in Los Angeles. I was in New Orleans, where I happened to be for a conference of black journalists, purely by coincidence. Danzie's new book is called New People. Enjoy. I spent some time reading up on you uh, in advance of this interview, and I have the smallest bone to pick. Oh, good. You said a thing about Los Angeles that wasn't that nice. I used to live there for about two years and loved it Oh, you did? Thoroughly. I you did. You loved I was it? I Mar Vista. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, good. What's not I to love? I loved it,
2: too. I mean, I think I know what you're <laughs> referring to.
1: <laughs> well, then you can say what I'm referring to.
2: You think I'm referring to saying it was boring? Yeah. Is that what I said? <laughs> well, you know you what I was thinking? You said it's so boring. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was thinking that after I said that, I came here and immediately started having children and that might actually be the boring part. <laughs> <laughs> is that I I came here and like left my 20s and my youth behind and started to like be a grown-up here. So
1: Yeah. I yeah. I
2: don't think of LA. LA is not a boring city, but it's it's Thank more the quiet. I think it's got that necessary quiet that's very productive for creative thinking. Mm. It's a much nicer way to put it.
1: That is. Well, because it, if I recall correctly, paraphrasing you, you said L.A. is so boring that your imagination becomes your life.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot of downtime and sort of you're not as as overstimulated by humanity as you are in New York. But I, I think it's a, a good thing. And I meant it in the best possible way.
1: i have just teasing you. <laughs> All right. One more question about place, and then we'll get to the heavy stuff. Uh, You reference in the book one of the characters, uh, well, two of the characters actually, live in graduate housing near Harvard, I believe, right?
2: Yeah. The mother, um, Gloria, Gloria, raises Maria there. Yeah.
1: In this graduate housing that you compare to a prison, (laughs) are you talking about Peabody Terrace?
2: Yeah, I think I am. I used to live there. (laughs) Oh, my God. It does look kind of like a prison, right? It's really tall. Yeah, that's hilarious.
1: But I mean, this is what I loved about the book so much. Like every other page, I was like, oh, that's my life. That's me. Oh my God. Oh, (laughs) she got me, she got me. Because like, you know, one of the big themes in the book is how black people, people who see themselves as black, how they constantly figure out and define and assert their blackness. And in the book, Maria's having a, tough road of it because of the color of her skin but when I thought about it more you know I am a black person who you see and you know that I'm black right away but I grapple with defining my blackness too like in this day and age and I know that neither you or I can speak for all the blacks but like
2: oh let's I do feel it. like
1: a lot <laughs> let's do it <laughs> <laughs> let's get in trouble I feel like a lot of us struggle every day and how we define assert and claim our racial identity
2: yeah and I think, especially at the age that Maria is is in her late twenties, and um, and and it for her, it kind of is defining itself on who she chooses to love and kind of partner herself with. It seems to play out with men a lot in terms of her sexuality, because her partner is this guy Khalil, who is half black and half Jewish, and only came to his understanding of his black identity through dating her. Um, and so before
1: her, he was like playing hacky sack and frisbee with the white guys, right?
2: Exactly. He was wearing a Bad Brains t-shirt. so he was, <laughs> <laughs> And he had the Basquiat hair, but he was only surrounded by kind of alterna white people, as she calls them. And um, they were at Stanford. And, and she kind of led him into his black identity. And... And she's sort of watching it with a little bit of a cynical smirk because she's been there a lot longer than he has, despite her appearance. And I think there's a bit of a kind of eye rolling (laughs) in her in general about people and their search for identity.
1: Which is so interesting because, like, she's the one probably trying to assert her identity as black more than Khalil is. You know, there's this interesting scene when everyone's at this dinner, all the the new blacks, the, you know, the members of the Niggerati. <laughs> I right, love that right. word, by the way. Yeah, uh, You say, this group and the pantomime of their newly discovered blackness. It's catching, the craze. We once were lost, but now we're black. It's so old school, it's new school. They have taken on their duties as Negroes with aplomb. She's got to give them that. They are born again, black people. They weeble and wobble on their new roller skates and almost fall. (laughs) But she has to give them an A for effort.
0: And I was like, I
1: know those guys.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, she's a little nasty as a character. And that's sort of why she was so much fun is that she's always kind of throwing shade at people. And um, I think that you know, she was raised only with her her black mother, who adopted mm-hmm. her and was mm-hmm. disappointed. Um, her mother wanted was part of a kind of black feminist awakening in the 70s and wanted to adopt and raise a black daughter and got a black daughter, but the daughter was so light skinned it appeared that she appeared to be white and she kept sort of waiting for her daughter's hair to change texture and her skin to darken up. And it just never happened.
1: (laughs) Never did. But Maria
2: has been raised, you know, watching roots and subscribing Mm -hmm. to essence magazine and identifying herself as black. And so, I think for her, the more of the dissonance is the way that the world sees her as white and well, yeah, how she's red.
1: And I mean, you got to feel bad for her because some folks think she looks white. Some folks think she looks Latino. Like she's just like that would drive me crazy.
2: Yeah. She's kind of like a Rorschach test for the culture.
1: <laughs> yeah. How much of that struggle with how society sees you? have you felt? I mean, you are a black person that some folks would see and not know what you are, think you're white. Um, Are the anxieties that Maria has in the book also some of your own?
2: Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm old school in a way because my mother is white and my father is black and I was raised only to identify as black, um, which is what you did in my generation. Like, it wasn't like there was another box to check. And my parents, being the people they were, were very pro-black identity and sort of really pushed that side of us. And um, and all my siblings and I all were raised, never thinking of ourselves as anything other than like light-skinned black people. Yeah. So now I'm I've come of age, and there's like other generations coming, and that's a very different struggle. Um, for me passing as white was always a kind of um difficult experience because of the the amount of racism i was exposed to kind of Secondhand. hand um mm. and secondhand,
1: the way that explain I, that.
2: where i would walk into spaces that were all white and have to listen to the and sort of be aware of the two faces of whiteness the face that white people wore when they knew there was a black person in the room and then the sort Ooh. of falling away of that mask when they thought they were alone and I was always privy to that and that was a a huge part of my identity and my kind of um, coming of age politically was that awareness but in a funny way I didn't ever really struggle with am I black or am I white like that was never on the table. I was just huh. a black person that happened to look white. <laughs> and um <laughs> and I think that's like another generation almost and and it wasn't like I, there's no point was I did I ever think of myself as a white person in my entire life and um yeah you know, blackness is such a complex, hugely mixed race. I mean, we are not just oh, yeah. one thing. So for me, that was always part of it, was that, you know, within blackness, there's all these different um, classes and shades and geographies and, and a black person walks into a room and, and not every black person is going to have the same experience or be read the same way. So I'm really, I think, interested in that diversity within us.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's like... There's this scene in the book where Maria in her quest, I guess to up the black quotient, she gets a perm to make her hair curlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, her soon to be husband compares her to a poodle. But right. um, the whole time I was thinking, I was like, you know what if Maria was in the age of the smartphone and black Twitter, she would have done some Googling and had someone help her figure out the right perm to get. And she then would I was like, Rachel
2: well, Dolezal out. <laughs> could have exactly. helped her out, could right? could
1: helped her out. But then I was thinking, you know, there were so many things that Maria had to do in the book that would have just been made easier with the smartphone.
2: I. Well, e, she's stalking someone, right? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, stalking it would have been so is so much easier if she could just cleaner. map them out. But if she also, could just be like, on Facebook stalking him, it wouldn't have been as exactly. good a novel, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. But, like, would her search for true blackness have been easier in this age in which everyone can figure out how to be woke on Twitter?
2: Oh, man. Um, I don't know, because my students seem to struggle and perform their identities in the same way that we did. And Really? And, they, and these are undergrads? Be, yeah. I mean, the ones that I'm referring to, like, there's been... I think it's it's like a age-old anxiety of a certain age group, you know, where everyone's huh. trying to figure out their identity. Um, do you think that? I mean, do you see that it's easier now to proclaim your—is it proclaim your blackness or find your blackness at like, the age? Or, of? like,
1: make sure that you're doing it enough and well enough. Like, it's funny enough, right. I'm, I'm talking to you now from the NABJ Conference, National Association of Black Journalists Conference in New Orleans, And it is this wonderful three or four days full of, like, upwardly mobile, nerdy blacks. Right. And we all perform blackness in a very distinct way. (laughs) We dress like white hipsters. Right. But also want to make sure that we know all of the words to that new rap song by Cardi B. And we do this delicate song and dance of ensuring that we seem equal parts intellectual and down and to ride right. uh-huh. it right. is performative it is performative totally
2: it's passing I mean we're always doing it and it's it's very fun for me as a novelist to write about this particular world and and I'm always making fun of my own people and myself first. Like, yeah. I I feel completely complicit in everything I'm ridiculing in this book. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I it wouldn't be able to write about it so clearly if I wasn't fully in, in that world and yeah. coming out of that struggle. Um, I just remember also, you know, when Maria's in college, like her stridency and and she's sleeping with this white guy and she's kind of but then the whole time saying she hates
1: white guys and it's like girl don't sleep with him then
2: exactly no she's kind of (laughs) constantly dogging out this white guy at the same time that she's having sex with him and i love characters that have full-on contradictions and you know that are problematic and that do the wrong thing. Like those are the characters I want to be with as a novelist, maybe not as a person, but as a novelist. <laughs> so you <laughs> like, would hang out sure. with Maria. I mean, I probably would for a minute and then, you know, who knows, but she <laughs> she was constantly, you know, like her her problems are all out there and um and she's kind of mean to this guy and he's kind mm-hmm. of clueless and bewildered and um and she kind of leads him to a kind of suicide. <laughs> um, oh, I, I know. Laugh. Well, because it's not a real suicide, I should say, but she yeah, he just to,
1: has a transformation.
2: Yes, he gets woke to being of color and to proclaiming his Chilean heritage, um, which is really minuscule. And he becomes yeah. uh, a Latino queer artist and reinvents himself and gives himself a new name. And she's kind of watching in horror as this white guy who she constantly berated for for being white completely changes in front of her eyes.
1: Yeah, which just underscores this central idea of the book, I think, that, like, race is performance. Yes. And how do you feel about living in that space where you're critiquing this part of people's identity that can seem so sacred and so personal? And is it hard to live in that space?
2: Right. I feel very committed as an artist to not allowing for sacred you know, spaces yeah. and for being sort of going to those uncomfortable places and those places yeah. that you're not supposed to go. And, you know, I think of the artists who I'm inspired by. I mean, a lot of the Harlem Renaissance was what I studied in college. And um, you know, there was this whole debate amongst the black writers of that time about what we should expose to people about ourselves. And, you know, these debates about whether we are allowed, like sort of respectability politics. Like don't tell family
1: business, basically.
2: Exactly. And that's killer for you as an artist, once you write from that place. And, you know, Langston Hughes wrote this famous essay um, about, I think it was like the Negro artist and the racial mountain about how you know, if white people are pleased with what we write, that's fine. If they aren't, that's fine. If colored people mm. are pleased, that's that's okay, too. We're pleased to have written what we wanted to write. You know, the culture huh. has gotten so, I think, um, in the last few years, I've, I've sensed a kind of self-righteousness and a kind mm. of um, people writing and speaking in a kind of fearful way around these subjects. And... There's a place for people to debate what can and can't be said, but my my role as an artist is not to kind of enter into that fearful space.
1: So then, okay, so we're in this society in this day and age now that lives by speed, brevity, groupthink, hashtag, or seems to at least in social media. How do you maintain bravery and diligence and truth of purpose to these ideals you speak of, of really being subjective and respecting no sacred space? how do you maintain that in light of the environment we currently live in
2: yeah no it's a great question cuz i i keep a, a a small group of people that i surround myself with who yeah. um who i feel entirely able to say everything to and and you know my yeah. husband and my close group of women friends and um you know i also have been thinking and talking about the subject for this is my fifth book and there comes a point in your life as an artist when you realize the the worst thing is for you to feel kind of self-conscious when you sit down to write for those hours and, yeah. and the worst thing is also not to be amusing yourself and um, I was raised, you know, my my kind of most fearless self was born out of my black identity actually. Mm. Like, the person in me who ruined dinner parties by outing myself as black and responding to the racism I was hearing, uh, um, you know, that that was my kind of birth as a writer in a funny way, were those moments wow. when I had to assert that self. And um,
1: I want to pause you just as a curious black person. What do they say when we aren't in the room? <laughs> Give me an example.
2: <laughs> I mean, you can, it's a range. And it's funny, like every time it happens to me, it's it's less interesting. Like it stops being interesting, you know, when people huh. sort of have these conversations that are coded, but not really about... Yeah a certain neighborhood, and who lives there, mm. and whether it's a good neighborhood, and, and then the kind of coded language might fall away, and they say, you know, you're gonna be the only white person in that neighborhood, I don't think you should, wow. and, and it's like, um, but I think what- It's tiring. What, yeah, it's it's tiring, but it's also kind of boring, like it's, there's nothing new to be learned about that
1: Yeah. Level I'm also just like, wow, stop being so fragile, like if I stopped going places because I was the only black person there, I wouldn't leave my apartment yeah exactly you know it's like, exactly. but get I over think
2: it. um, the thing that interests me is the kind of hysteria and discomfort and anxiety that my presence then brings to that space and once the they know what you being, are, yeah, the feeling of either being betrayed that I didn't announce it before they said the thing, or well, that, how would um, you go
1: about doing it? Hello, we are I am black,
2: yeah, or to like. The other funny thing I've noticed, I mean, these are the more nuanced things, is, like, they kind of keep telling me that I don't look it, and as if I've never heard that before, and they keep wanting to tell (laughs) me It's like telling a fat
1: person they're fat. They know.
2: Yeah, like, wow, you're kidding. Oh, my God, I better (laughs) go look in a mirror. I really thought I... And just the sort of... Those moments of anxiety are are kind of interesting. But it's been kind of, you know, great vantage point to be in as a writer, because... I think the thing that you can't lose as a writer is your outsider position. Like, that's golden for mm. you, is those places where you felt outside, because that's the position you see most clearly from. And, um, and read in the, you know, sort of like larger that. sense of that word. Yeah. You can read from the outside. And, you know, I've thought about that idea of, of someone who's mixed and we're constantly being, when you're racially ambiguous, and I think this is true for black people, people who who are read as black but like you know you're always kind of being read in a way as other people like when mm. you walk into a room and you're a black man and people get nervous like they're reading you as someone else like almost like a ghost figure in their head right
1: oh yeah and then you're very quick to like do something that disarms them yeah smile really big make a joke or like literally put your hands up so they can see
2: your hands. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. So you're always living with this ghost figure of the the white imagination when you walk into a space. And Uh. I had a really moving experience. I went to Japan a year ago and um, Mm -hmm. was in Tokyo and I gave a reading with a simultaneous translator to a group of Japanese people and my first novel all about Passing had just been published, and afterwards, all of these people stood up one by one, and turned out they were all secretly part or whole Korean, Whoa. and that their their connection to my book and the subject of huh. passing in the middle of Tokyo was a completely different cultural context but they were crying and they were talking about how it had moved them and wow it sort of shattered all of my expectations and and talking to people afterwards I had this revelation that you know we live in America where we're we're made to think that black literature is like this little shelf in the back of Barnes and Noble's like mm. separate from other literature mm. and when you go around the world you realize that Black literature has been this revolutionizing force on the rest of the world. And it's how people wow. understand their own liberation is through black literature. Hmm. And like Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison, like this is the the language of liberation around the world everywhere mm. you go.
1: All right. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back with more of me talking to Danzy Senna, And in this next part, we'll talk all about the election of Barack Obama. BRB.
0: Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from the Platinum Card from American Express. There's a great big world out there and no other card lets you experience it like the Platinum Card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Support also comes from Sunbasket. Sunbasket sends organic and sustainable ingredients to your door, pre-measured and ready to go, so you can prepare delicious meals in around 30 minutes. Sunbasket takes the guesswork out of preparation, makes cleanup easier, and you get to skip the grocery store with meals designed to fit every busy lifestyle. Choose from paleo, lean and clean, gluten-free, vegetarian, and family options. Get $35 off your first order at Sunbasket.com/many.
1: Hey, y'all, if you liked this episode of It's Been a Minute, then check out How I Built This. Every week, Guy Raz, host of the show, he talks to the folks behind some of the most inspiring companies and movements in the world. This show brings you stories of incredible persistence and grit and insight. It's really good. You can find How I Built This on the NPR One app or wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, I want to go back and talk about the students and the young people that you've encountered as a writing professor. Do you see a lot of them grappling with race in a different way than Maria does in the book? Because it seems like there's more of a fragility now to these conversations.
2: Yeah, I, I, I've i noticed that. I mean, the character of Maria, we go back to her college days at Stanford and, um, you know, we see her talking trash. She says she's standing in her hallway being professionally black and I love people. that
1: phrase too, being professionally black. <laughs> and since I read it, I've noticed times throughout my day when I start doing it, I'm like, Sam, you're being professionally black, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah, we should all be getting paid for that. Um, <laughs> you know, like those hours you're clocking explaining stuff. Um, but she's just yes. sort of she's standing in the hallway explaining to a group of white students why this very blatantly racist poster is offensive. And, um, I just remember like how strident we were and how much yelling we did in college and mm. and we were probably irritating in the same ways that students now are, you know, like but I think we sort of were playing it out amongst each other and like uh-huh. not asking someone to police what each other were saying, but we were actually yeah. like yelling at each other. Um yeah. and whether that's better or not, I don't know, but there was something that shifted a little bit where we're trying to kind of keep things very clean
1: and like keep some of those tough conversations from even having to be had
2: yeah and exactly uh, yeah. and I just I just resist anything where people start to think of identity as static and that you're mm. always inhabiting one position um the idea that we don't all have oppressor and victim within us and uh. you know and and privilege and and sort of unprivileged within us like, the idea that we're just frozen as this one representative, and that, that doesn't yeah. shift in context, is a hard idea for me because I know that we do. We do shift.
1: And we can be more than one thing at once. I mean, part of what I love about your book, part of what I love about this new crop of, like, peak prestige, black TV, I call it. Like, you have these characters in shows like Atlanta and Insecure that aren't at all just really gifted black guys or amazingly brave and bold and fierce black women. They're awkward and insecure and strange, and there are a lot of different things at once, and they're expressing this level of vulnerability and simultaneously extreme openness in a way that's refreshing.
2: It is, it's really, like, I think TV is in some ways uh, a little bit ahead of academia and mm. um, and the literary world, actually, in terms of those complex depictions. Yeah, and I don't no, know why that is, but it's it's yeah. really interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, I could not help but reading the story of Maria in this book, a mixed race woman, well, a black woman, but um, whose lights. I think and, of her as not... mixed
2: and black. You know, it's yeah, it's both. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's both. And I and I I couldn't help reading about her without thinking about barack obama perhaps hmm. the most famous mixed race man of our time and then i did some digging and there was an interview you gave when your memoir came out in 09 where'd you sleep last night when that came out you were asked about obama by smith magazine
0: mm-hmm. and
1: i want to read you the quote um, okay and talk about it you said I was teaching college students at Occidental when he was elected, and I noticed that the young white men in my class were especially excited about him. It struck me that they identified with him for a multitude of reasons that had nothing to do with race. Because he was young, because he was Internet savvy, because he was liberal but in a new school way, because he was a cultural hybrid and they felt themselves to be cultural hybrids. He spoke to them as a generation. So his election both speaks to the subtle nature of contemporary racism and also to the transcendence of other identities, which perhaps drew us all together in the end. Sad to think
2: back to that, right?
1: (laughs) Sad. Why is it sad? Explain. Yeah,
2: poignant. I mean, just that I think that was written before we knew what was coming next. But, Mm. um, you know, I did notice that I think that we have this sense of ownership as Black people, you know, but that he was some somebody who there were so many different identities going on there, you know, and my students were were really identified with him, and he was not just just ours. he was he was all of these young people's president and a shift in their thinking about who could be president. you know, I, I always assume that um everybody is passing. And when I walk mm. into a room, and I meet a stranger, you know, assume that you don't know everything about this person by looking. Wow. and Because that wow. assumption has been made with me so many times, I meet someone and I assume there are parts of them that I can't see. Yeah. So let them surprise you, let their secret self emerge that's not visible. Um, mm. And that was kind of what I've learned a lot through teaching, actually. You know, really? I had a student who was um, kind of like a, a blonde frat guy jock, really popular um, in a class on memoir. And I sort of assumed I knew everything about him based on looking. This was a long time ago at the beginning of my teaching career. And his first essay for me was about having cared for his severely disabled sister from the time he was little and sort of like in high school having this secret shameful self where he would you know, have to care for this very, um, you know, nonverbal, mobile sister of his, and then her death. And, and, you know, it was kind of like this shock to me. And I think Mm -hmm. that's sort of what bothers me so much about the kind of stridency of people, the Twitter revolutionary mindset is the kind of idea that we are always on the right side, and we always know everything huh. about everyone else, and that—that that yeah. is, I think, a really dangerous place to come from. And I, of course, have the Jonestown story in the the memoir, and oh you know, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's that's where that's that like the most extreme version of ideology over humanity.
1: Can we segue to Jonestown for a bit?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll never so, tire I guess... of Jonestown.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. Um... I don't want to assume that all of our listeners know.
2: Yeah. It's, it, whenever you've heard the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, it's a reference to this 1978 cult um, that um, a thousand people drank poisonous Kool-Aid together. A thousand Americans died together under the command of Jim Jones, who was their leader. And um, But most people only know that, if that. Mm-hmm. And he was a white... Left-wing minister of the People's Temple Church in San Francisco, and um, believed in everything that we think we believe in. You know, most of us that I, most people I know, would have thought he was great at a certain moment. He was anti-racist. He created a multiracial church, and um, mm-hmm. was an a lot activist. of black followers. A like a lot of black followers, and a lot of the people who died there were black, and um, and created this multiracial. Utopia, socialist Utopia, where he brought them all to the jungles of Guyana. And um four years later they were all dead. And um it's a really fascinating, disturbing story that I Maria is doing her research on throughout this novel and on the it was music an op- of
1: Jonestown.
2: The music of Jonestown, because they created an album and they had a lot of music there. And um they sold their album and I have their album. Is it so a good I listen? It's a really amazing listen, actually, and um, wow. but you can't listen to it without the sadness of what knowing that every voice on there is someone who died there, um, mm. and all the children singing on it. You know, it's it's a heartbreaking album, but um, I was interested in that kind of group think and taken to the most extreme place, and how these ideologies coming before humanity. Are mm. you know the thing we have to really fear in some way?
1: It's so true. Um, you write there's one line in the book. You say how much Jim Jones loved black people before he killed them. What a warrior against racism.
2: Yeah, and that was that sort really of- stuck with me. You know, the idea that we will have perfection or we will have nothing. And, you know, they were murdered in a way. Um, some of them willingly drank the Kool-Aid, but some of them didn't. And yeah, the mind control and the sort of fear mongering that he did. I think there's so many lessons to be learned from Jonestown. And so... You know, my hope with this book, because I touch on it lightly in a way, um, is that people will want to know more and go deeper into it because it's one of those narratives that has fallen out of our, uh, I think a younger generation doesn't really know what it is and people have forgotten it. And it's, I think it speaks so much to to our moment in about 20 different ways, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, what was the exact reason he gave for making them drink the Kool-Aid? Was he just like, we're going to go to heaven or was it deeper than that?
2: He wanted to make a statement, um, this was his logic to them, was that they were going to make a statement, and this was going to be this profound statement of, he called it revolutionary suicide, that they were going to show that they will not accept a world in which racism exists, in which sexism, homophobia, they were going to, and so they were just going to all kill themselves because they had been challenged from the outside and there had been this congressman there trying to find out if people were being held against their will. And Jim Jones being the kind of classic, narcissistic, charismatic leader, um, the moment he's threatened or challenged or that his secrets are about to be revealed, he has to get control. And and his way Mm. of showing control was to kill all these people and then to kill himself. And so it was, you know, the details of it are just incredible that this happened and that these were the bright, idealistic activists of that era. Um yeah, I mean there was that was pretty obvious to me that I wanted to use Jonestown in this even before I I knew what the story was.
1: Are you hopeful about the state of race in America today? A lot of the themes that you pick up in your book which is set in the 90s are still very much with us, you know. The Brooklyn in the 90s in your book is dealing with gentrification then in the same way that lots of people are dealing with it now. The questions of defining and occupying and performing race are still at the forefront now for people. Are you hopeful that things will get better going forward? Or is that even the wrong question to ask? I don't know.
2: Yeah. I mean, I always think about two things. One is the idea of permanent revolution. Like I assume Mm -hmm. we'll never have to stop having these conversations. And the moment you think you don't is the problem. And I think black people have been having one conversation about race and white people have been having another. And it's like almost a non-conversation. And I say this like understanding that within those categories, there's a diversity of experiences and viewpoints, but in a generalizing way, like there hasn't been a conversation really about whiteness and What is whiteness and what do we, and and that started when I was in college where people would talk about, you know, white privilege and the invisible backpack and all this stuff. But black people become the site of the conversation and the the site of the gaze and and where we place our, you know, we we look to blackness as the way to discuss race. And that's kind of, I think, problematic because it then puts all the weight of it on us. But I, I don't come at it as a you know, politician or someone who's gonna write editorials. I come at it as a novelist and you know, my job is to describe and tell this story, a very specific story. So I don't I don't have any answers. I'm I've you know, washed myself <laughs> clean of that <laughs> position. Like I'm here to tell a story and to paint a picture that will hopefully leave you, you know, less certain of these mm. positions than it was when you started.
1: I appreciate you challenging your readers to do that. And the book challenged me and I just loved it so much. Um if you talk to Maria, tell her <laughs> just to chill a little bit. Just yeah, chill she needs just to a chill. little bit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, but then there wouldn't be any story for me. I need her <laughs> to keep going, right? <laughs> That's true. Hey yeah. well
1: this just made my day. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a lovely L.A. day.
2: Thanks so much for having <laughs> me on your show and for all the great questions.
1: Thank you. Take care.
2: Thanks so much. Bye. All right. Bye.
1: Danzy Senna she was so nice to talk to. Her new book is called New People. And if you happen to be in the D.C. area and want to come say hi, I'll be hosting a conversation with Danzy Sinna at the East City Bookshop in Capitol Hill on Monday, September 18th. It's a free event. Come on by and say hi if you're in the neighborhood. It's also my first like book chat, so I'll be nervous, so a friendly, smiling face would be much appreciated. Uh, again, East City Bookshop, Monday, September 18th. We'll be back in your ears on Friday with our regular wrap of the news, culture, and everything else. For that episode, send us a recording of your own voice describing the best thing that happened to you all week. Send that to samsanders at npr.org. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month.
1: The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet.
0: Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared.
2: Like, I can't protect you.
1: We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.